ready? Are you going to be quiet this time? <laughs> that would be a no. That would be a no. <laughs> Hello there, friends. I'm your host, Kendra Winchester, and this is Read Appalachia, a podcast celebrating Appalachian literature and writing. This is episode seven, which is all about poetry. Now, to Dylan's credit, that was actually Gwenlian. Uh, she is crated right now and is very displeased because she's the kind of quirky that uh, likes to be involved in everything. Welcome back to the library. It is a glorious time of year where it is warm, but not horribly hot. It's a fine line here in the South. Sam, my spouse, uh, the corgis and I, recently went on family vacation to Amelia Island, and the corgis love exploring new places, uh, so they had the best time. I love exploring the bookshop, the spice shop, and the olive oil store, so I feel like my summer cooking, we're ready to go. We're ready to go on that. Uh, unfortunately, we also brought back colds, so uh, thank you in advance for your patience as I croak through this episode with varying degrees depending on when I recorded the interviews, but we will we will press on uh, because we have a lot of great books to talk about today. You know, before I leave on vacation, I like to make a TBR, but I normally don't pack novels anymore. Instead, I pack poetry collections. I love poetry collections and the unique perspective on the world that they bring, but I, I wasn't always interested in poetry, I have to admit. Like a lot of people, I grew up thinking poetry was too highbrow or too much like a nursery rhyme. And, you know, I am so glad to be, be so wrong on both counts. In college, I was required to take a Britlet survey course for my creative writing major. And... In that course, I fell in love with poetry. I didn't read a lot of poetry in high school, so names like Wordsworth, Shelley, Lord Byron, and Coleridge, they were new to me. And that meant that I was able to read these poets for the first time without the expectation or preconceived notions based on what some dusty critics have said in the past. And I cannot tell you the joy that it brought me to be able to read uh, these poems in that way. Now, it wasn't until many years later that I finally got into contemporary poetry, especially spoken word poets on audio. I mean, I will never forget listening to Denise Smith read their collection, Don't Call Us Dead. It, it's, it's stunning. It is so good. <laughs> but what about Appalachia? Well, as many of you already know, some of the best American poets are from Appalachia. Poetry is a cornerstone of our literature and other forms of cultural expression. So today, we will be delving into poetry, talking with a couple of poets, and adding a delightfully high number of books to your TBRs. So before we jump into our theme, let's talk a little bit about different ways that you can support Read Appalachia. Now, throughout the show, I will be sharing different ways that you can support Read Appalachia, as of right now, it is mostly funded by me and the wonderful folks over on Ko-Fi who donate to keep this show running, and I am so grateful for everyone who has already done that. 
So one of the first ways that you can support Read Appalachia is sharing Read Appalachia with a friend. Word of mouth is really how this show has been gaining traction, and I am so grateful for you all for doing that. You can also rate or review Read Appalachia on your podcatcher of choice, especially Apple Podcasts that helps people find the show, and it really gives us a nice boost in the algorithm. So thank you, thank you, thank you. That's it for now. I will be back to share another way that you can support the show. Uh, But until then, let's jump back into our topic of poetry. A few years ago, during a pandemic Zoom event, I was being interviewed and the host asked me to recommend some books. Now, of course, I am always trying to sneak more uh, Appalachian books into every event, so I recommended Black Bone, which is an anthology of Appalachian poets. I described the collection and highlighted some of the poets included, but the host kept giggling to themselves, and so I asked, did I say something weird? The host said, oh, I just didn't expect for poetry like that to come from a place like that. I was no stranger to people's prejudices about Appalachia, but I have to admit, this moment set a fire under me. I don't know whether I realize it at the time or not, but that moment made me want to then shove Appalachian poetry into the hands of every person I meet, especially the Appalachian poets, because they do such incredible work. So let's talk about the Appalachian poets for a moment. The term Appalachian was first coined by former Kentucky Poet Laureate Frank X. Walker, And when he was looking for a term to capture his experience as a Black Appalachian, uh, he came up with the term Appalachian. He later went on to co-found the Appalachian Poets, a collective whose members include poets like National Book Award winner Nikki Finney, a legend of our time, Nikki Giovanni, former Kentucky Poet Laureate Crystal Wilkinson, and the late Bell Hooks, a national treasure if there ever was one. These are just a few of the incredible poets in this collective, and I will be sure to include links with even more information so you can go check out all of these incredible poets and learn more about their work. On the website for the Appalachian Poets, it gives a little more detail about their mission statement. And on the website, it says, Afrolatcha embraces a multicultural influence, a spectrum of people who consider Appalachia home and or identify strongly with the trials and triumphs of being in this region. Since 1991, the Afrolatchan poets have been writing together, define the persistent stereotype of a racially homogenized rural region through their writing and the very existence of their enclave, the Afrolachian poets continue to reveal relationships that link identity to familiar roots, socioeconomic stratification and cultural influence, and an inherent connection to the land. Today, I'm talking to two members of the Afrolachian poets. Later on in the show, I'll be talking to Lisa Kwong, who just joined the Afrolachian poets last year. Her poetry chapbook, Becoming Appalachian, also came out last year. But first, I'm talking to Bernard Clay, whose poetry collection English Lit is a huge favorite of mine. I first talked to Bernard for 100 Days in Appalachia, and I will link that interview in the show notes. Uh, So I knew when 
Read Appalachia became a podcast that I really wanted to talk to Bernard Clay about English Lit and share his work with you all since it's just it's just so good. Yes, there will be poetry reading in this episode. Never fear. Uh, I'm so excited. <laughs> all right. So how about we just jump on into the interview and uh, we can learn more about uh, Bernard Clay and his poetry collection, English Lit. Yeah, this is Bernard Clay. Um, I'm from Kentucky, a Kentuckian at heart, but um, through way of Louisville, um, an urban area, I write poetry and I currently have a book out called English Lit. It's my first book and I hope you get a chance to read it and enjoy it. Right now I live in Eastern Kentucky on a, a technically a farm and I, I spend my time writing and growing food. That, that sounds amazing. I also love your author photo where you're on a, on a people can't see this, but you're on, I think it's a lawnmower, like a riding lawnmower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent choice. <laughs> yeah, my uh, partner took that picture of me when we first moved here. And um, my publisher was like, yes, that should be your picture. <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. So, Well, it was, it was a great idea. Definitely a yeah. conversation piece. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're here to talk about your poetry. Like you mentioned, English Lit, your first collection. I I always want to know, how did you come to start writing poetry? Growing up in Louisville, I, you know, early on, I knew I wanted to do something with storytelling and writing. Um, we had this thing called Young's Arthurs um, in, in Kentucky. I, and I, I don't know if it was statewide, but I know I had it through first and second grade. Um, and we were crafting our own books. Um, and so I started out writing stories. Um, and it wasn't until I got to um, high school when in, in junior year, I think, or it may have been my sophomore year. Um, my teacher, who was really, really dedicated to instilling us with um, literature, um, had this section, this three week or three month section on poetry. And every day we had to bring in a poem. That was my first time ever being forced to write poetry. And I never had even considered it. Um, but it began to, you know, I began to pour out like all these things. Um, I, you know, this was at the beginning of like, not the beginning, but it was the, my beginning of sort of exploring, listening to hip hop. Um, but I also had been a, a student of the Black Arts Movement. Um, and knew about The Last Poets and had watched um, Eyes on the Prize 2 and Eyes on the Prize 1 and saw, like, these video clips of all these orators, Black orators, um, who could just put these words together so succinctly and, and, and powerfully. And all that stuff was sort of influencing me, and I just poured out on the page. Um, my teacher took notice of it and was like, this is actually, she didn't say actually, this is pretty good. Um, and she encouraged me to send it to the Kentucky Center for, or the Kentucky Governor's School for the Arts. Really, it's just, it's just like, I was forced to do it, but it ended up being something that I liked doing. It was like, um, of course I was a procrastinator. I would write the poems, like her, her class was right after lunch. I would be at lunch and I would be inspired by stuff that I was seeing around 
the cafeteria, but I would be adding like depth to it um, that, you know, commentary on the larger society, I guess, uh, from my junior or sophomore um, perspective. And so um, I guess she liked it. We sent it off. Uh, and Frank X. Walker happened to be um, his first year teaching as the instructor there. I got in because he sort of noticed, you know, oh, this is a young black male talking about his experience growing up in the West End from his perspective. And I was sort of unapologetic about it. Um, and it and, and that sort of is what allowed me to sort of get in. And, and that's that's the story of how I started writing poetry was sort of like this way of expressing myself um, sort of um, mandatorily by school. But then it was like, oh but I could write all these other things. I have all these other thoughts and I could just put them out there and people will listen to them if they're in a way that um, is accessible to them. And so that's, that was the drive behind me getting into poetry. Um, I know that sounds, that's not, <laughs> that's not the best way. Uh, it, I would love to say like I was inspired. Um, there was, there was some bit of inspiration, but I did know that I was always going to, do something with writing very early on. And this was just one of the venues that opened up for me. I mean, that is a stroke of fate. I think finding Frank X Walker as being that his first year there and finding your poetry and finding a place. I feel like at least growing up for, for me, there's a lot of assumptions about poetry. Did you run into like a lot of, why are you writing poetry? Is that a girl thing or a Hallmark card thing? Like, how did you feel about that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, poetry is sort of like, yeah, the the stepbrother of, of literature, right? Um, it, it's not, it, it's not thought of well in the general population, let's just say that. Um, and yeah, so when I started writing poetry. Um, people be like, oh, okay. Um, but then when you perform it for them, it's a different story. It's like, oh, your your stuff is, I can understand what you're saying. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of the, the, the issue with poetry is sort of like the obtuseness that sort of exists within academic poetry. And I'm not trying to knock academic poetry at all. But I didn't have any academic training and my poetry sort of came from lived experience and just a love for language. Like I love, I would, you know, I just started listening to um, these groups like A Tribe Called Quest, De La So, Public Enemy. Um, and then also you couple that with me watching old clips of Stokely Carmichael, uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, like recite and speak on their black experience and standing up to, you know, standing up to the normative society, um, all those things sort of boiled away. And so eventually also during that time frame, I, I don't know if this happened on the wider mainstream community, but within the black community, there was a big spoken word, like neo soul movement. And so it, I sort of inhabited that area too, and that sort of allowed me to like be shielded from the, I guess, the commentary about poetry uh, that a lot of people do have. Is it? I mean, they still have it. When I tell people I write poetry, it's sort of like you do what? Um, what? Well, how do you get into that? <laughs> uh, and it's like I, you know, I usually just say like, oh, you know, I, I used to, I used to write raps, and they eventually 
form than the poems, but um, it's just a lot deeper than that because it's not, it, it is a form of expression, but it is it's a form of expression in a way of giving your perspective on the world. Um, and I think that's what rap is too, to a certain extent, but you know, like we were talking earlier, poetry just takes on these different forms. Yeah, I definitely sense the stigma that comes with poetry. Um, it sounds like from what you're discussing that you have a lot of like performance poetry influences. Yes, yes. Because to me, yeah, what what established it for me was sort of like seeing people perform it. And now, you know, I definitely read poems that I loved, you know, on the page um, early on. Um, I mean, a part of that assignment, a part of that section that we did on poetry was reading poems. Um, and we would read, you know, Villanella, like all the different forms, um, sonnets and things like that. And I saw the beauty in them, I, you know, and we discussed them. It was just, there's a a, a feeling that that's of an older generation or that's a, that's a thing of the past, sort of, or at least that's what it sort of seemed like to me when I was coming up, like, and so this this new spoken way of doing it was a way of making it very present and, and pertinent to what was going on now, especially the subject matter, which is like innately tied to the struggle of of existing as a black person within um, a society sort of set up against you. I think what you were saying, you were talking a little bit before about the way that poetry evolves based on the technology or what's going on. In that, um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, we see each other on TikTok, you know, we have all these different things going on. You're posting about creepy trees and I'm <laughs> posting about Hamburger Helper or whatever. But based on what you're seeing there, um, how has poetry been evolving evolving for you from your perspective? Well, yeah. So, like, I, I was saying that, telling you, like, I, I have great hopes for poetry because I think, like, there are, it, it may not be what we have traditionally called poetry, but, you know, there are a lot of like trends and memes that come out that take great creativity and have very adept um, perspective and commentary on what's going on in the world. And because it's in a visual format or because it's in a video, a TikTok, a, a 30 second TikTok, we don't consider it poetry. But if you think about it, th like if we think about poetry as this primordial way of communication that us as humans develop tens of thousands of years ago, um, it fits in that niche. It, 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 is, it is doing that. It is communicating emotions and stories, um, feelings about the greater society and your, your place in it using language, but also visuals. You have the ability to use visuals. A lot of stuff that I see on TikTok also is just the presentation of, like we were talking about performance poetry. Like performance poetry is very big on TikTok. You'll, you'll see... Um, hundreds of thousands of likes for people who are just in front of a mic reading a poem um, in a way that people can connect with it. And I think, you know, that's a big part of the poetry. It's, it's you, you need to have an audience that you connect with. It's not to be pontificated upon. It's to be submersed in and, and absorbed by the audience. Right. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I have great hopes. Like when I watch TikTok and, and even Instagram, I, you know, I'm not a real meta person, but I, you know, but, you know, what I'm talking about is sort of like this new way of expressing yourself through these mediums that 
were not accessible. If you think about it, writing itself, we think of writing as this mainstay, but it didn't come about till about 5,000 years ago. You know, like we humans have been along a lot longer than that. Language has been along a lot longer than that. Poetry stories have been around a lot longer than that. Writing is just a way to preserve those poems. Um, and maybe video is a new way to preserve it. I really, I really love that. I, there's so many spoken like word poetry accounts that I follow, like different, different buildings or different places where they have regular performances, which is really interesting. And if you see Denez Smith perform one of their poems, it's just, you know, it's just stunning. So I, it really helped me wrap my brain around different kinds of poetry because you have like the Denez Smiths of the world and then you have the uh, Lily Long Soldier people who are more focused on like space on a page and like looking at the white space and and how each each and every different kind of poetry is just a different way of expressing yourself in this format and I I don't think before reading that and reading investigating these different poets I realized it's just I feel like an average poetry reader how many different kinds there were of different types of poetry which is just really cool to find out I feel like there's a niche for everyone Yes. Yeah. And that's why I was like, I don't want to seem like I was coming off like I'm because I think that there is space for all types of poetry. Like all of it is very pertinent. Like they're on the on the page, on the video, even off the top of your head. Uh, I think that all of that is sort of like a part of it and helps toward like a greater growth. I see it as a unifying part of our existence, uh, poetry. It's something that has been prevalent and is in every single society throughout the world. I think poetry is, it's a really fascinating type of literature um, because it's its like uh, different people on the same team as opposed uh, to like, they're not, different types of poetry aren't competing against each other. They're all part of the same group. And that's something that I really enjoy about poetry because, I mean, we understand that there are different fiction genres, right? And they're not necessarily competing. They're just part of different facets of a fictional story. So, um, yeah, I just think it's really cool to, like reading Black Bone, for example, the Afrolachian poetry anthology, there's so many different kinds of poetry in just one collection. And so I kind of view like poetry formats sort of like that if that makes sense no yeah i i totally agree with you it's 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 like um they're all a part of like this pyramid and each one of each stone sort of represents a different genre or type but it's all building toward this one unified structure superstructure that is is poetry um it is our understanding or our way of trying to make out what's going on in this world and our place in it as humans. Um, so, and I know I'm being very highly philosophical, but <laughs> I was like, you can uh, tell we're bookish types with all the metaphors we have going on right now. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, I think that's the importance of it. And I, I think people, even if people are like oh, poetry, this, they don't realize how much poetry inhabits their lives. Um, it's not very, clear to them that most of the the marketing and all like everything is built upon poetry ultimately uh if you go back far enough then like where did this come from um so it 
that even though they may not acknowledge poetry inhabits all of our lives. Um, and so it's, it's hard to get away from it. And it's just, you know, it's good when you're able to encourage people to embrace it wherever it occurs. So earlier in our conversation, you talked about how poetry gave you a way to express who you are as a black man living in, uh, white supremacist America and what that is like for you, for you as an Appalachian poet, how, how, how did those things connect with you? Is that something that you made immediately or is that something that kind of grew over time as you were exposed to other kinds of Appalachian poetry? No, it was, it was, it was something that almost, I, I mean, like I, like I told you, uh, I grew up in a household where, um, my parents were very aware. Like, we're, I mean, I'm a relative of Muhammad Ali. So, uh, and, and if you've heard his espousing, you know about his history um, with dealing with um, not being a part of the Vietnam War and then being like pitted against American society, just himself. Um, you sort of know, you can sort of get a sense of where I'm coming from. Uh, my parents were very aware that this was uh, the, that things were stacked against us from the very beginning, and so it it, it wasn't they didn't sugarcoat it to me, uh, and so the, because I was aware of it, and because they pointed me to literature, um, like we had a, a African American um, encyclopedia from Ebony, and it had pictures, and I talk about this in my poetry, um, it had pictures of you know lynchings and 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 just a a whole breadth of things that were happening to to black people throughout you know the civil rights movement and that stuff sort of you, you absorb that and so one of my first poems is called um the q-tips last mission and it it's it sounds like a very mundane poem about a q-tip uh, but i was drawing a connection between um being a black person in society and being used up. And so very early on, you know, like I, I made that connection that, yeah, I'm going to use this to discuss. I'm going to, this is how I express these feelings that I'm having about not, not really feeling right about what's going on or my chances in this world. And I mean, you know, I knew I could, I could have a better life than my parents because it was, what was espoused, but it was still very evident that this was, I mean, I grew up in the eighties and the nineties and we were, it was very hush hushed in. We're not as, as vocal about it as we are now. There was, it was during the pre-political correctness days where things were not discussed. It was just sort of pushed under the rug, but it was still visible to me. And I love talking about it. And I love the awkwardness that it caused when I read my poems and it sort of put that in everybody's face. Um, so very early on, I, I knew that, but when I met and started meeting with Appalachian poets, especially when I went to the university of Kentucky, that gave me, um, a more, um, in-depth and varied knowledge base on what was exactly happening and, and also gave me the vocabulary to talk about it or, um, you know, just hearing the, and to be honest, I didn't even know that there were other black people outside of um, of Louisville. And so just the uh, just the ability to see, oh, these are black people who live in Lexington or live in 
um, Danville or lived wherever and they existed and thrived um, was beneficial. And so um, getting the vocabulary and then getting the tutelage of like some of the most highly um, sophisticated and, 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 you know, um, awarded poets of our time, like Nikki Penny, Crystal Wilkerson, Frank X. Walker, like, uh, you know, having them in their younger years sort of bring you up um, was beneficial. So all that stuff helped imbue more of these things into my writing. But I will say they probably wouldn't notice me if I wasn't doing that stuff anyway. If I was if I was not, I probably wouldn't have gotten into governor school if I was just writing about um, flowers in a in a, a, a witty way. And not, I'm not going to. I'm not gonna knock out the poetry, but I was writing about stuff that was like very pressing to me, and so if I wasn't writing about that, I don't think I would have been able to 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 navigate to where I was I'm at currently. So you've been writing poetry for a long time, and your first collection just came out well a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> yes. I. I feel like there's a is there story behind that, or is it just something that you finally felt that this collection was finished and you didn't want to put it out until you felt good about it? So yeah, no, like it wasn't it wasn't like something that was pressing that I need to put out a book. And so like after I got out of college, I did try to get into some MFA programs. I was summarily rejected from all of them. And so then I was like, okay, I'll you know, I'll continue to write, but, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to like beat myself up about it. And so I went into corporate America. Um, and so while in corporate America, um, I realized over a course of like five or 10 years, uh, I really miss writing. And so I sort of got back into it. Um, and I realized there was a program in Spalding and I got into Spalding, um, and then they offered me a fellowship at UK. So I went to UK. Um, and that's when I ran into my um, one of my publishers, which is Oko Press, Nyoka Hawkins. And she had always been, a, she, I mean, she was asking me about writing the book back in 2000, like the year 2000. And I was like, uh, I don't think I have enough work. So, um, you know, over the course of the 20 years, I've compiled like hundreds of poems. Um, and so that's where it came from. It was sort of like me running into her and saying, like, do you still think we could probably publish a book? And I was like, well, if you want to, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm up for doing that, but I was not, it wasn't something that I, I actively pursued. So that's probably why it took so long. Maybe if I had sort of been more diligent about it, but I always was like, I'm going to write these poems and maybe someday I can collect them into something. Uh, so it was always in the back of my mind, but I was just writing like because stuff would happen and I'd be inspired to write about it. And that's how I liked writing. It was like no pressure. And so I did that for 20 years. And so for me, the writing experience for English Lit was very enjoyable because I got to live my life. I didn't feel pressure to write it. And it just sort of came about through um, serendipity. When I first got out of college, I was like, oh, I need to do this by this time frame. But as it as time went on, I was like, you know what? Who's 
I'm I'm going to do this at my speed. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Um, and I, you know, like I, I didn't really send out my poems a lot and things of that nature. I, I would I continue to do readings over the 20 years, uh, and I would read newer poems and stuff like that because the Appalachians would say, "Hey, you want to do this reading?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, sure." Um, and so I knew that my stuff was there was going to be a response because I was getting a response from the crowd when I would read them. So I was like, these are good. I know they can do something. Um, I just, you know, when the right time happens, I'll know. And it just happened to, you know, concur when I went to my MFA program and they were like, Hey, we, we need a book and we think we, we want to publish your book. And I'm like, okay, great. Well, I'm, I'm so glad they did because I really, love your collection. I have, um, people can't see this on the audio, obviously, but there are many tabs in the, well, <laughs> in the book, um, which I feel like is a sign of love, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm one of the first people that reached out to me about the book. So it's, it's, I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Like genuinely. Well, I am, I am happy to be a cheerleader for folks work. That is my my goal with my work is if I can get more people to become fans of my favorite authors, I've done a good job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about your poetry. Is there some that you would like to read for listeners just to give them a little taste of um, your work? Sure. Sort of one of those points I was telling you about where it seems like it's about a mundane thing, but it's really a commentary on something else, um, which I do a lot. It's called The Good Couch. In the living room sat the couch, one of the splurge items, an oatmeal tweed burlap thing purchased spontaneously at Value City. And for the good couch reason, my parents covered it with a sheet of plastic, a foggy, heavy synthetic skin that rustled with every motion. When summer smothered up, scorching hot days, back when home AC was a myth to me, Something not felt but alluded to on TV. On those simmering evenings, prime time bubbled across blue flickering screens. Couch filled to capacity with family and box fans propped in windows, making our house a convection oven. We would broil on that couch as its transparent epidermis bonded with our bare arms and legs so that, of course, I would have to wait until the next commercial break, because the sound of me ripping clean from the Velcro couch would have drowned out the TV a bit, and everyone would have thrown a fit, because Cosby might have said something witty in his air-conditioned wild brownstone. That was English Lit, or not English Lit, that was <laughs> the good couch. I'm going to read English Lit next. I, I hope you don't mind cussing. I just read this one because it's just so fun to read. Um, but it's the namesake of the book, and it sort of exemplifies what the book is talking about. English lit ain't never meant shit to me, a griot from urban decay. I care less about the way the Middle English or even their contemporaries display their masturbation, a.k.a. mastery of a native tongue sprung from spliced together stolen components of failed conquest thirsty cultures. Meanwhile, I carry a $80 leather bound 
50-pound edition that I don't even read, sitting in classrooms full of white girls who aspire to be teachers or pontificating writers like the self-absorbed ones up front, jacking their egos for hours straight about imagined, intricate, insignificant details of forced literary regurgitation and their slightly different postmodern imitation? They talk about my limitations on papers and in my daily speech, yet I still continue to reach to the streets, represent, even though they be hinting with C-minuses and D-pluses, that my attempts at writing should cease and desist. But my claim to fame is not only as a writer, but also an arsonist, because every time that my pen and paper hit, I receive great joy at watching the Queen's English being lit. Thank you. I, I, I love English lit. That's one of my my favorites as well. Okay, so, well, my last question for you, because this is a bookish podcast, um, what poetry collections would you recommend? Um, Perfect Black. I, I think that that is like a great poetry collection. It's, it's just, I, you know, I wish I could write a little bit like that. Just, just powerful. Um, so Crystal Wilkinson, Perfect Black, great poetry collection. And then I'm going to talk about her husband or her partner uh, up from some dirt. Um, he has a book called um, Deifying a Total Darkness. It's it's a it's this older book. I think he has a, a collection out since then, and he has another collection coming out. He's a he's an artist, but he also he he did the cover for um, Perfect Black and the cover for this particular book. But his poetry is like just it's just so great. Um, he he just uses every bit of the ether to write about his his work, and it, I love it. Um, and then. Um, there's a, a woman named Joy Priest. She wrote a book called Horsepower, which is just some of the best writing from somebody from Louisville um, that I've read. So, I, I, you know, I love her work. I wish I had I had lent out the copy, but if I had the copy, I would be showing it on the screen right now. But anyway, uh, Horsepower, just I can't say enough about that book. Um, she's she's a great writer. I You recommended um, Horsepower the last time we talked for 100 days and I picked it up and I read it and it was just phenomenal. So thank you again for yeah. that recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I will forever be until she puts out a new book. I'll, I'll, that just sticks with me. I don't know if it's cause I'm from Louisville and it's just, but she writes so great. So yeah. But well, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about all things poetry. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Kendra, and I appreciate it. And you're doing God's work. Keep it up. Thank you. Read Appalachia is a passion project that I'm able to do in part because of the wonderful folks over at Ko-Fi. Ko-Fi is a platform where you can give a one-off donation or set up a recurring monthly donation. There, I share little insider tidbits like the themes coming up, the people I'm interviewing for those themes, and of course, all of these updates are accompanied by quirky photos, <laughs> as they should be. So you can find out more about Ko-Fi via the link in our show notes, or you can go to ko-fi.com, that's K-O-F-I.com. All right, now back to our show. 
Oh my goodness, the poem English Lit is one of my favorite Appalachian poems. And I always love hearing about how poets first find their voice. I keep thinking about that one teacher that introduced Bernard to poetry and how that effectively changed his life. My next guest, Lisa Kwong, also found poetry in school as a kid. The daughter of Chinese immigrants, Lisa grew up in Appalachian, Virginia, and was inspired by Frank X. Walker's term Appalachian, and she created the word Appalachian to describe her experience as an Asian American Appalachian. Ever since I picked up her chat book, Becoming Appalachian, I've hoped I would get a chance to talk to Lisa about it. So I am so grateful that she was up for coming on the show. So without further ado, here is my interview with Lisa Kwong. So my name is Lisa Kwong. I am the author of Becoming Appalachian. So as you can probably assume, I identify as Appalachian, an Asian from Appalachia. I am also an Appalachian poet, freshly inducted um, in 2022. I'm originally from Radford, Virginia, born and raised, and I lived in Appalachia for the first 30 years of my life before uprooting to go to the Midwest, um, Indiana University for my MFA. And I will admit that a majority of my book, um, or all of my book, was written while I've been away from Appalachia. So that's me for starters. So I am very so excited to talk with you, Lisa. And uh, your chapbook, Appalachian, is just uh, a, a beautiful snapshot of who you are as a writer and a person how did you come to start writing poetry because I'm always interested to hear how poets come to it because I feel like oftentimes we feel poetry is a little more I don't know air quotes like difficult how were you drawn to poetry so I actually started out writing more prose Fear Street by R.L. Stein was really popular when I was in fifth grade so I started writing my own invitations of Fear Street, and I included my classmates as characters, and they just loved being part of the stories because I got to read them out loud uh, every week in front of the class, which, thinking back, fifth grade was kind of when things started to become a little more awkward for me. So the fact that I was even like willing to stand up and speak in front of people at that time is kind of amazing. To me, I mean, I do it all the time now as a teacher, right? And also with readings and other presentations. But yeah, I, I guess I'm a little surprised that I was able to do that at, at in fifth grade when things started to get a little awkward, a little more self self loathing. Uh, but it was in sixth grade. We had to do a poetry project, and I can't find it at the moment. But we had to analyze some poems, kind of like make our own anthology and kind of reflect on the poems. And I, that was also like my first, um, first attempts at writing poetry. They were not very good. Um, they were very like just simple rhymes and everything. But I think even then I had a little bit of a sense of humor because I, I guess, you know, at, at that age I was probably exposed to like limericks or 
um, things with, you know, very, you know, exact rhymes, sing, sing songy kind of things. So that kind of got me started. And we had this, um, I think it was like a random house treasury of children's poetry or something. That's where I got a lot of my selections that I put into my own little collection of my project. You know, one of the poems that stuck out to me that I can remember from that time is Annabelle Lee by Edgar Allan Poe. And, you know, everyone read, reads Poe and like K through 12. So that kind of got me started. But obviously, um, there was a whole big world of poetry I did not know about and still trying to learn more about um, even at my age. I'm in my 40s. So then, like, going into middle school, we had, like, a literary magazine, and you weren't able to work on it in seventh grade, but you, but you could do it in eighth grade. So I don't know, like, what specifically prompted me to say, hey, you know, I want to work on the literary magazine, but there it was on the um, Kaleidoscope staff, and... My eighth grade English teacher was Mrs. Hassel, and I just remember, for some reason, that was the year that I just wrote a lot of poems. I would show them to her, and she was just really excited, and obviously, a few of them ended up in the journal, and she just really, she was one of the first people to really encourage me to keep writing. So then, I kept writing throughout high school, but I was also very involved in band. So I had these kind of like dueling passions. Um, and that would continue to be the case for a while because I did enter uh, Appalachian State as a music major. And that, and, but even like as a music major, I, one of the first things I would tell people is I write poetry. And so um, still wrote poems, whole time I was a music major. And then I took, um, at the time, it was called Black Literature, the summer between my junior and first senior year. And I remembered what it was like to feel mesmerized by words. But that was kind of the, the turning point for me. And my advisor, you know, my professor who eventually became my advisor was like, you know, you should really look into becoming an English major. So after a lot of kind of deliberating because I don't, I try not to make any like rash decisions. I switched my major. Um, and then it's actually been 20 years since I started my formal training as a poet. And so the very first poem that we read in beginning poetry at App State was where I'm from by George Ella Lyon. And that was also our first prompt. And I recently actually had to revisit that poem for a, another workshop that I did. And it's interesting to see the foundations of what would eventually become recurrent of names becoming Appalachian. I really love how we can have these moments in class and read a poem or a work of literature that really sits with us and it really moves us in that way. And I didn't read a lot of poetry until I was in college and I was a creative writing major and we were moved from the communications department to the English department my sophomore year and were required to take a bunch of literature courses. And I felt very overwhelmed 
But once I sat down and started reading some of the poetry assigned, I was like, oh, this is why I'm here. Poetry, even though I feel like, I mean, I have a master's in English, but I still feel like I might be bad at reading poetry, but I, I really enjoy it and I really connect with it and really appreciate it. You are a teacher now. You've taught poetry. You write poetry. For you, what is what is so important about poetry um, to our culture as readers, to who we are as people? Well, I want to approach this from the idea that when we have those important moments in life, whether it's a wedding, anniversary, I actually just recently wrote um, all for my church's 50th anniversary of when we uh, merged denominations, uh, American Baptist and United Church of Christ. Um, we also write alms for you know, funerals or um, in times of tragedy and times of crisis. So it's interesting to me that a lot of people say they don't read poetry, but yet in these very important moments, of life, they turn to poetry, they turn to the arts. I mean, a lot of us would not have survived the lockdown or pandemic without um, some kind of arts, some kind of entertainment, right? So I think poetry, especially the different forms it's taken today, whether it's like um, slam poetry, which I'm familiar with. Uh, we do have a local series called the Bloomington Poetry Series, which was founded uh, by my best friend from the program, the MFA program, Sierra Miller. Um, so whether it's slam poetry or even, you know, poets who take to Instagram or any other kind of social media to share their work, there is something magical about saying what you need to say in a small amount of space. I mean, a lot of people write haiku, right? Um, there's a lot that could be said in those 17 syllables um i think for me in terms of like the current events and times of crisis that kind of thing i didn't really think of myself as someone who responded to current events or had the uh, bandwidth to do so but when you know anti-asian hate during covid hit when the um Atlanta spa shootings happened in march 2021 i was asked to respond to this to these events as one of the, um, you know, few Asian American poets on campus. And so I really had to um, step out of my comfort zone in those times because for, for things that are emotionally challenging for me, I typically need a lot of time to process. Um, I will say that my astrological side is cancer, so very emotional uh, very uh, deep in thought, long time to reflect, that kind of thing. So when I was asked to do these, you know, current events, always essentially, um, that really, I guess, it, it made me realize how important poetry could be. It's like we know that it can't stop a bullet, we, it can't stop someone from being assaulted on the street, um, et cetera. But the fact that someone asked me to write a poll when our community was hurting was very powerful to me. 
So I think sometimes when we don't have any other way to express what we're feeling, poetry can be that kind of outlet, that kind of witness to um, what we're experiencing in these times, these difficult times. I think it can also help people to at least start the healing process. I mean, healing is a continuous journey, right? But it can also help people to start that healing process or to um, have some words to hold on to for comfort. Uh, you know, much like people turn to Bible verses, maybe very religious. I love that because a lot of the uh, Bible is is poetry. Yeah, all I feel like also we consume a lot of poetry as a, I mean, as humanity does. I, I think so often, like you hear in songs or, um, you know, the performance poetry is just on fire right now on TikTok, especially and. Um, and, you know, social media poetry is also now a thing. But when we, we consume poetry as a culture, I feel like we don't realize how much it's inherently part of our culture. And we're like, oh, wait, that's that's poetry. We more expect to see poetry in, you know, English like classrooms or something like that. So I really love what you were saying about how as a culture we have a practice of poetry for important moments. Ugh, I just I could talk about that forever. But, you know. We only have so much time today. <laughs> For me, I, I think two of the most impactful poems I've written were one, I think I wrote like a haiku for someone. And then also um, I mentioned, you know, Rita Riddle in one of my poems in the coming Appalachian. Oh, okay, I haven't talked about this in a long time or really to that many people, but, um, you know, she was dying from cancer in 2006, I think that was the year. And she was in ICU before she passed. And, you know, they only let, you know, family really go into ICU, right? Um, I guess this is also uh, the sense of community that we have in Appalachia. Um, when we had, we had a lot of customers that worked at the hospital and at one of the nurses was able to get me into the ICU room. And I read this haiku that I had written for Rita. Rita. Like, you know, even though I don't know if she heard me because she was obviously asleep um, when I was there, but I read it and I left the card there. And then um, later our friend Chelsea read it at her funeral and I remember one, just one of her sons coming up to me after the funeral saying, thank you for that poll. Um, I just read it over and over, you know, when I was with my mom. And I mean, that's the power of, that poetry has. Just even a little haiku. So. And it's like a, a gift you can give, you can give someone. I feel like such um, poetry has this ability to do so much in a short amount of space, like um, like really nothing else, and that's something really beautiful about it. Yeah. Your your chat book came out last year. Congratulations on that. I I can only imagine the years and the waiting and all the work that went into uh, becoming Appalachian. Uh, how did you decide? You know, after writing all these poems, how did you decide what ones would make up the chapbook? 
Well, I see Becoming Appalachian as an origin story. So, okay, I, I do love superheroes, so that's, that's where I'm kind of borrowing that phrase from with Superman, with Batman. It starts with parents, right? So, Becoming Appalachian, the actual process of me working up to that identity it wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for my father's, you know, act of courage and swimming to Hong Kong, you know, escaping mainland China and surviving. I mean, in the poll, you know, I literally talk about him saying people just not able to continue. So, you know, re- reflecting back, he said, you know, at the time, he didn't think that he would survive. So, I mean, if he hadn't survived, I might not be here. Um, if he hadn't settled as Radford, I might not be um, Appalachian. So I had to really think about, you know, what were the poems that were essential to that process of me coming into my identity. So obviously, yeah, the poem opens with my father's swim, but then it also, right after that, looks at my mother's side of the story. And I will say that those poems were written like six years apart. I'll be honest, I don't have a good answer of why it took me so long to write my mother's side of the story, but um, it's possible that my father's story is just that powerful. Like people will still come up to me, even if they've heard the poem like, you know, 10 dozens of times and they say it still just hits them in the heart or the gut. So I thought about the family stories that were really important to me. Obviously, I was raised by my and my paternal grandmother, um, and also my yeah, yeah, my grandfather. But yeah, my Nyingi was a central figure in that Appalachian childhood. And it's also my grandparents are also the reason that I'm still so connected to my Chinese heritage. I mean, the complaint that a lot of people hear about uh you know, second generation Asian Americans is that we don't have a culture or that we're like flawed or that we're not, you know, real Asians or whatever, pure Asians, whatever people uttered, you know, whatever the terms people have thrown at me, whether in real life or, in, you know, in my classrooms, even those family stories, those moments with, you know, my grandmother in particular were really important to include, especially the, the poem where, she reveals, hey, your biological grandfather, your, you know, your dad's biological father, you know, was taken away when he was just one years old. And there's that, you know, that's, there's that cultural collision, right? Because I grew up in a two-religion household. Uh, so I also wanted to highlight poems that reflect that kind of cultural collision, um, not just, um, you know, American and Chinese, but also Chinese and Appalachian. And I would say that, you know, one of the obvious polls that reflects that is this ABC Appalachian board, Chinese girl. So I feel like, I'll be honest, I feel like the earlier poems, the family polls of the childhood polls were a little easier to select. Most of the polls have been tried and true, meaning they've either been published or I've, you know, taken them through even like years of revision. Um, the later poems, obviously, there's, you know, a little bit of a gap 
in terms of my life story because I haven't really talked about the, you know, the Appalachian State days or even, you know, some of my high school days. Yeah, I kind of wanted people to glimpse a little bit into what life has been like since um, moving out of Appalachia, but how I still carry that that identity with me. And uh, honestly, I'm still still learning a lot about what it means to be Appalachian, um, you know, even what it means to be Asian for me. Because uh, I, I was never ashamed to be Asian, which is another thing that afflicts a lot of second generation um, Asian Americans. I was never ashamed of being Asian, but I, I sometimes felt like I wasn't Asian enough because of um, whether that's, you know, not speaking uh, Mandarin or, you know, not being good at math. Um, and I guess I still struggle sometimes with feeling Appalachian enough. So that's why the, um, the affirmation from, you know, the Appalachian community, from the Appalachian poets, it has been so important because it's like they, they see me as, you, you all see me as one of your own. I'm not just this, like, outsider, you know, like, who am I to call myself Appalachian? Um, and then, you know, I've also had, you know, outsiders that are not Appalachian that are like, well, you can't be Appalachian. And I'm like, well, who are you to say that? So... Yeah, something I really appreciated about your poetry collection was delving into your identity as an Appalachian writer and what that means for you. I feel like if any people hear discussions about the intersections of identities in that way, you know, we're familiar with the Appalachian poets. Your perspective as an Appalachian writer is really is really fabulous to see and see you discuss. Uh, I saw you had an event with uh, Michael Crowley, who is a biracial Korean American writer, and then I think Nima Vashia like uh, called in. How was that to have everyone like well, a lot of people together in the same room to discuss your you know shared experiences? That was to me um, a vision that I didn't think would come true so soon. I will say that when I started claiming the Appalachian identity, which was around 2008, 2009, and it was because, you know, I knew of the Appalachian poets from college and Frank X. Walker was now like my, my big brother. But yeah, I felt very much alone, but I also knew, you know, one, not one person can speak for everyone. So I never claimed to speak for all Asian Appalachians. And two, I'm like, there has to be more of us out there. It's just that I don't know how to find us yet. I really feel like that was just a very monumental event. And it also, you know, I, I mentioned this during one of the like Q and A's. It also was not lost on me that this was an all Asian lineup after COVID when there's that exponential rate, you know, rise in anti-Asian hate. So for three Asian Appalachian writers to come together. And, um, you know, that's not even all of us, right? That's just three of us. Um, because, you know, Danny Quintos, her book came out last year too. I mean, last year I felt like was kind of a banner year for Asian App- Appalachian literature. Um, and I do include myself and <laughs> that, um, you know, humbly. Um, but yeah, just to be in that room and I, I kind of felt like the new kid on the block because like I know like 
my book and Nima's book came out in the same year, but you know, I guess hers was with the university press, so there was like more marketing and everything involved. And she's been on like a lot of uh, book lists. Uh, I think every time I, I I see one of her posts pop up, it's like I made this list, or you know, I'm doing I'm covered in this newspaper. And it's, it's really wonderful to see. I actually had the chance to teach her book um, last fall in my Asian diaspora class. It really like shifted my students' view of like, okay, what is Appalachia? And also what can Asian American literature be? And, um, you know, Nima was also gracious enough to visit my class via uh, Zoom. Yeah, but there were a few, uh, you know, queer Asian American students who were like, I, I feel seen. Uh, you know, I resonated so much of her book. I had also communicated with Mike Crowley um, just via email. I don't know how much I'm supposed to say, but we are working on like an anthology product together that he asked me to be part of. I'm not going to say any more because it's still very much in progress. I mean, I guess I can say that um, for that particular project, I am working. I, I do have an essay that says progress, and I'll go ahead and reveal the title. Um, and I don't think it's going to change. It's called Appalachian Enough. So kind of harkening back to some of the things I mentioned earlier in the interview. But yeah, it was just very surreal to be there. And to also, um, you know, Silas House, who is now the Kentucky Poet Laureate, to have him email me and invite me to be part of the Appalachian Symposium. And he's like, I'm a fan of your poetry. I'm like, what? You know, it's like, I grew up reading you at college and you're like this best-selling novelist and you're saying you're a fan of my poetry. I mean, that's, that was a huge honor as well. So I will say that it was also my first time as a visiting writer on a college campus, um, so that was an honor as well. Um, I will say that probably the part I struggled with the most, uh, I don't think I really had the priority complex. I was just really happy to be there, and I know that you know, we're all, all such different writers with different things to offer our readers and the region. I did struggle with some of the Q&As, um, especially when they would ask me, so, you know, who are your literary influences or, you know, what Appalachian writers do you recommend? And I, I did have to be very honest. I was like, you know, I still feel like I'm, I'm learning a lot about Appalachian literature, despite, you know, obviously being exposed to some of it in college, you know, because for the longest time, I didn't think I could be Appalachian. So it's like, well, why should I be reading these books that don't relate to you? Does that make sense? All in all, it was a fantastic experience. I hope we can do it again sometime. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, I'm always excited to see authors I love together in the same room. It's like when all your favorite people are together and you're like, oh my goodness, this must be an amazing event. It's such a joy to see because like you said, I feel like so many people, if they even know what Appalachia is, they assume that it's just a bunch of white people. And that is a huge, harmful, almost violent erasure of people's identities, of, of people from a wide range of backgrounds who live in the region. So seeing you three together, I was following along on social media, like a little nerd, like very excited for you all. So I was so happy to see you all recognized and appreciated for your work. Yeah, and I also do want to give a shout out to uh Dr. Chris Green, who is director of the Loyal Jones Appalachian Center at Berea. Um, he is 
actually my fellow Hoosier and Mount, ASU Mountaineer. So, I, I, yeah, just the hospitality was really wonderful from the staff and faculty and the students. Um, you know, they, they asked me some interesting questions. Well, I'm, I've had a lot of interesting questions at all these events. Um, I, I, do, I did have one young woman ask me about how to write food in a exciting way. So... Food writing is always interesting, which I feel like is an entirely like different conversation. But um, I loved I love your poetry collection because you talked about your family's restaurant so much and the food that is involved. And and I am a huge fan of food writing. I have a whole like section of my library dedicated to food books and and cookbooks and everything. And so I really love seeing it in poetry. I I guess I didn't realize how much that is something that I really love to see in poetry collections. So thank you for including that. Um, I will say that I may be developing a food writing class soon uh, for one of my, my schools. So I will keep you posted on that. That is really cool. That is really cool. I, I, did, I mean, it makes sense that there would be a class, but I hadn't really like thought that all the way through of that could be a class. And that is amazing. I still need to write the proposal, and I think it's will hopefully run. But um, the idea is to appeal to our, our uh, hospitality uh, majors. Uh, you know, people working in the culinary arts, uh, you know, food service, customer service, and I mean, that's just I'm like in the perfect position to develop the course like that. That is of my restaurant and writing background you know i see all of my experiences as wide-ranging or disparate they can be i see it all connected together so well i i think that's all the questions that i had on my list besides the closer question but i wanted to give you a chance if there's anything else you want to say that you haven't covered that you would like to share with listeners um i guess i just want to again express my gratitude to the AppWatcher community i'm just really happy to be part of such a amazing community i mean there's so many appalachian writers uh, that i've been able to connect with and also scholars and um educators so i'm just i'm just really grateful to the appalachian community for their support um you know over the last decade plus well i am sure we could talk for ages uh but you have also offered to read some poems to us today. Uh, so how about let's start with that. And I think the first one that you've chosen is the first poem in your collection. On the 42nd anniversary of my father's swim from China, October 17, 2015. Suspended between shores, you watch your friend's tire disappear beneath bluish black waters, never to resurface. We agreed to swim together you promised to keep going, even if some could not go on. Someone must reach the shore of freedom. This journey must not be in vain. You keep swimming, your family's voices echoing from the homing left, your son and daughter's faces etched on clouds. Your limbs grow heavier after the first hour. You keep time by the shifting sky, one arm, one leg moving after the other, Strong strokes slicing cold Taipang Bay. Salt slides from your eyelashes. The sun as a blinking siren. Spotting a shark fin in the distance, you quiet your strokes, your eyes still in Hong Kong. 
Even the fear of being eaten alive can't stop you. You want to love to see your babies grow up to grow old with your wife. You must succeed as a man, as the head of your family. You keep swimming. Believe your blood father is watching, the father you never knew. You must keep swimming to rewrite history. His early death will not be yours. You will live even though your legs feel like sacks of rice. You believe there is something stronger than exhaustion. This is why you continue to kick towards freedom. This is why you won't stop until your feet touch shallow ground again. This is love spanning generations of blood, red legacies that will survive shark bites, the ghosts of family secrets. You must keep swimming to reach the shore where you will be reborn, a tiger emerging. This ABC Appalachian or Chinese girl. She's a middle finger to the fortune cookie, a middle child born in Radford, part of the New River Valley. Never fully Chinese, she devours sausage biscuits before Sunday school. Never fully American, she chews chicken feet, a preference she used to not proclaim. Feared being shamed by white folks grossed out as if bacon, ham, and steak were holier. For after-school snacks, mom and dad made cheese egg rolls, walk fried grilled cheese sandwiches. She learned square dancing in fourth grade PE, Appalachian English in seventh grade. She mucks up the model minority parade. No calculus, no physics. Yes, clarinet. Yes, poetry. Still voted most likely to succeed. Mountaineer alumna of Boone, she was raised on Ron Rash, George Ella Lyon, Donald Seacrest, Jim Minnick, Rhea Riddle, Frank X. Walker, now also reads Amy Nezifumatatil, Beth Wen, Lee Young Lee, Marilyn Chen, Celeste A., Jane Kwok, carries their words around like favorite Bible verses. She's got three Southern grandmas calling her sweetie. Y'all is hull, not knee hull. She endorsed sis, mocking her sometimes Southern accent. Side-eyes Confederate flags who can't see her Appalachian roots. Okay, searching for wonton soup. Nothing compares to mom and dad's wontons. Many globes of ground pork perfectly wrapped in a thin golden skin. But I can't live at home forever just to be fed. At every restaurant in Bloomington, Indiana, I try to find a soup good enough. Broth not too oily, skin tender as the meat inside. I love dozens of scallions floating like emeralds, slick green, baby bok choy, steamed just enough. I've been satisfied, disappointed. Sometimes I wonder what the hell I just ate. I hate going out to eat with complainers, even though we all, well, some of us anyway, can cook better than what we pay for. But sometimes we don't want to dice vegetables or retire flipping and stabbing meat with silver thermometers. We just want to eat. Once in China, my father saw his mother, my Yingying, staring into a soup kitchen window crowded with customers, scooping up wontons and slurping broth. A steam rose to cloud the ceiling. She clasped her hands behind her back, her face full of hunger. Seamstress money wasn't enough to buy bowls full of wontons for herself, her husband, and six children. 
That tells me I don't know struggle. Not like they knew when Tyshawn, or when his feet first touched ground in San Francisco, when English was a diamond locked in a glass case. I will never fully understand their poverty. Imprints on shoulders and hands from carrying buckets of water from a well, cooking rice over open fire, living in a one-room brick house with dirt floor, sleeping in heat while mosquitoes siphon their sweet blood. Now, filled with gratitude, I know there are worse things than bad wonton soup. Because they had little, my father now prepares enough for an army in training. Plates overflowing with beef, yu choy, chicken, broccoli, and shrimp on every table. We fear hunger, fear necessities running out, so we buy extra, cook extra, wonder, when will anything ever be enough? Well, my last question is, of course, book-related, as this is a book-related podcast. Uh, what what poetry would you like to recommend to listeners? Okay, I picked two collections that have been on my mind and heart lately. Uh, so the first is from Big Brother, Frank Swapper, uh, Mass Man, Black, Pandemic, and Protest Poems. And I think this book is a really good model for helping um, us to process both, um, you know, the magnitude of what the lockdown did to us as a community and also thinking about all the race issues that happened during that time. And I feel like it's a good model for any future work that I might do related to current events to, um, to race. Cause you know, I still obviously haven't fully processed the, all the anti-Asian hate that's happened. Um, we just had a young woman stabbed back in January of Bloomington on a bus. Um, and that was very traumatic for our community. So, um, I really appreciate Frank's book or how he navigates, um, two major issues, but then also has these moments with family, these intimate moments with his family, um, interspersed throughout. Um, the second book I would like to recommend, and it's, uh, also another model for me and for my future work is Mini Story and House by Jordanelle Lyon. And the reason that this book speaks to me is because First of all, she has a, you know, a drawing map of her house, and she literally takes us through every single part of the house and shares the stories associated with it. I mean, the opening, it's, or the opening section is downstairs, and we go from the door to the bathroom, to the closet, to the passage, and then to the living room, and so forth. And I will say that um, we lived in my main childhood home for, I think, 17 years before we moved to our current house. And um, that house still haunts me. Like, I still dream about it every now and then. And I guess there's just something about that childhood home that won't let me go. Um, and, you know, Georgia Lyon also writes about her, the house that she grew up in. And um, she has a much longer history than I do. With, with her family's house. But 
Um, yeah, it just, it's, I feel like it's a unique way of looking at place uh, by looking at the individual rooms and even like, you know, a door handle, you know, that's something we use every day, but we don't always give it the attention that it needs, even though we couldn't go into rooms without door handles. So, or door knobs. That sounds amazing. I'm going to go pick up both of those. I've read those authors before, but I haven't read those collections before. So that it's always lovely to see people you love creating more more work. And there's so many great poetry collections out there. Um, so hopefully folks will go and find out more poetry and find new poetry that they love. But, uh, but thank you, Lisa, for coming on the show and um, being so gracious with your time and sharing your work with listeners. And I hope you have so many new fans who love your work as much as I do. Thanks, Alexandra. I am always looking for new t-shirts. I love so many different ones. And so I wanted to make sure that Reed Appalachia had a wide range of different kinds of t-shirts. Of course, we have the regular Reed Appalachia logo, a classic, and you also have individualized state shirts. So you can buy a t-shirt that says Reed Kentucky or Reed Virginia. And our most recent design is based on reading band books because that is so important right now and I would love to do an episode on that at some point we will get there I am sure one month at a time Kendra but I created uh, t-shirts the one says read band books and it's kind of designed after the original logo and I have a text only design that says this Appalachian reads band books and it's kind of like a Appalachian take on a classic I am so excited for these t-shirts and of course as with all tea public designs in Reed Appalachia's store these designs can be stickers buttons tote bags hoodies so many options so I hope you enjoy heading over there and checking out our tea public store all right now back to the show ever since I talked with Lisa I keep thinking about what she said about how people often don't think that they like poetry, but when a big life event happens, a wedding, an anniversary, a funeral, etc., they reach for poetry. There is something about these words on a page that brings so much meaning, that captures these moments in our ever-changing lives. Kentucky's latest poet laureate, Silas House, described how a teacher encouraged his writing, making such a huge difference in his life. And the same is true for Lisa and Bernard. Both of them had teachers that encouraged their work, that encouraged them to write poetry, to write all of the things. And truly, that illustrates that teachers are the makers of future poets. And their role in this kind of creativity for our region is priceless. I hope you all have enjoyed talking about poetry as much as I have. Uh, This is all the time we have for today, but I do have plans for featuring even more poets in the future. Logistically, I cannot feature all the poets on my list in one episode. That would be 
a very long episode, so I do have plans to feature a lot more poets in the future. So I'm hoping that I will be able to roll that out around Reed Appalachia's birthday in August. But in the meantime, you can find a wealth of poetry recommendations on Reed Appalachia's Instagram. I have been posting on that Instagram for almost three years now so there are a lot of recommendations and there's even a poetry guide on instagram gwenlian in the background also very enthusiastic (laughs) all right that's our show friends a heartfelt thank you to bernard clay and lisa kwong for coming on the show today you can find all of their social media info linked in the show notes and like i mentioned earlier you can find all the myriad ways to support read appalachia on readappalachia.com. You can also find us across social media at Read Appalachia. You can find me across social media at KD Winchester. And make sure you join us next time for a special Pride Month episode. Until then, happy reading. <laughs>